Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with Robin Roberts about her new book, City of the Undead, Voodoo, Ghosts, and Vampires of New Orleans. Roberts is Professor Emerita of English and Gender Studies at the University of Arkansas. She is the author of several books on gender and popular culture, including Subversive Spirits, The Female Ghost in British and American Popular Culture, Anne McCaffrey, A Life with Dragons, oh how I loved her, (laughs) and Ladies First, Women in Music Videos, and co-author with Leslie Wade and Frank DeCaro of Downtown Mardi Gras, New Carnival Practices in Post-Katrina, New Orleans. Today we're talking about her new book, City of the Undead, Voodoo, Ghosts, and Vampires of New Orleans, which explores some of the otherworldly inhabitants of our city. You'll learn a lot from it, I promise. Robin Roberts, I'm so happy to see you. I'm very happy to be here, Susan. One of the things you do so beautifully in this book is give us the historical context for these things, for why voodoo, ghosts, and vampires took such hold here and have such staying power. So talk a little bit about how it captured your attention and how you got started on it. Well, you can't live in New Orleans without being aware of the supernatural. You see funny lights, you witness the fog, you see people costumed, and you don't know if it's a costume or reality. So just being present in our city, I think, has a big impact on your interest and awareness of the supernatural. But I also came to this subject by teaching courses about the supernatural. Uh, students, college students, are fascinated with the supernatural, and they're maybe less intimidated and more respectful of the supernatural than people of my generation. So after many years of teaching uh, stories about New Orleans ghosts, I decided I needed to look at it, and I was surprised to find that there are many books on the subject, but none really explain why New Orleans is such a supernatural site. New Orleans, as you probably know, Mm -hmm. is considered to be America's most haunted city. And I did have a discussion, even an argument, with one of my colleagues at the University of Arkansas about whether other cities, such as Miami and New York, had just, or even Charleston, had just as good a claim to the most haunted title. And uh, so my book is kind of an attempt to explain why New Orleans is the most haunted city and to explain the connection with its history that makes New Orleans unique. Well, I think you won that argument. Uh, I hope you did. (laughs) We'll have to see if any of my friends decide to write a book to refute 
City of the Undead. We'll see. <laughs> City of the Lively yeah. and whatever. <laughs> so tell us about voodoo, for example, its roots and its strengths. And I was so interested to read about why zombies never took hold in New Orleans, yes. for example. Well, and it's another example of how New Orleans takes features of other cultures and transforms them and makes them uniquely a part of our city. So voodoo is associated with New Orleans through one of the greatest priestesses of voodoo, Marie Laveau. If you know nothing else about voodoo, you've probably heard the name Marie Laveau. And she was a long-term powerful woman in our city, a free woman of color in really awful times from a legal point of view for anyone who wasn't a white male. And yet she managed to be a power broker, an influencer, and to earn people's respect. She was a real historical woman. And I was surprised that many of my students didn't know that. And so I think it's important to realize that voodoo is based on actual practices And we still have quite a bit of voodoo in our city today. There are operating voodoo temples, a couple of which are public and have public events like Voodoo Authentica. And voodoo is so much more than how it's represented generally in popular culture. In popular culture, it's sometimes trivialized, and its important feminine leadership is omitted. And so people may know about Papa Legba or see the top hat and think, oh, that's voodoo. But really, it's a woman's religion. And you have a picture of Ava K. Jones in this book as well. That's from Voodoo Authentica. And she is someone who, as I talk about in the book, um, makes a really important point about the coexistence, even fusion, of Catholicism and voodoo. The two are not necessarily antithetical, as you might think. And in fact, Marie Laveau herself was a practicing Catholic. Uh, Mm -hmm. She had a relationship with the local clergy, and she performed good works and was generally admired when you read her obituary and other contemporary accounts. There's very few, but there are actual accounts of Marie Laveau from her own time that praise her as being a Christian woman, a Catholic woman. And you make a great case for the cultural surround in in things like American Horror Story. Yes. I love American Horror Story, although I will admit I had to close my eyes uh, (laughs) in certain of the scenes. It's very bloody, so kind of a trigger alert there for people. I taught it for many years. Most of my students had no trouble with it, but I, even after watching it many times, just found the uh, depiction of torture and awful events that went on to be very disturbing and very graphic. But Marie Laveau, uh, who probably never did meet uh, Madame LaLaurie, although we don't know whether Dauphine LaLaurie could have met her, they did coexist. They have an antagonistic relationship, and Marie Laveau is much more powerful than the white, rich woman who in real life tortured the enslaved. I know. It's so interesting. Marie Laveau gathered power in such interesting ways. Yes. You know, part of it came from being a hairdresser, knowing everybody's business. Well, I think she was probably what we would today understand as a psychologist. She understood people's needs. She listened to them. She offered them hope. Um, Think of what the legal codes were like there and how awful it was for the enslaved, even for white women who may have had money, but they didn't have power because they were totally legally the property also of their husbands. When you read about accounts of her voodoo rituals at 
the time, there were white women and black people together trying to consider what would be an alternative to a system they found extremely oppressive. And so many of the leaders of the spiritual churches were women as well. Yes, that's right. And so that part of voodoo continued to affect the black spiritual churches, which were, as you say, founded by women and which included um, Native American figures, Blackhaw, for example, as being Mm -hmm. figures who were important and who they admired and who they felt could be kind of guideposts. So that's the biggest thing to me about voodoo is that in contrast to our kind of current climate of individualism, voodoo says be a part of nature, understand nature, respect yourself and respect other people and understand we're all connected. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think helped was one of the sources of her power was to move sort of seamlessly among a very segregated world and to see the connections between the different parts of the Mm -hmm. society. So let's talk about ghosts for a bit. And I'm curious to know how much of this work grew out of your previous books, Subversive uh, Spirits. Well, I love it, that title. Yes. Well, and that's that has continued with ghosts. What I found out, my former, my colleague, Frank DeCaro, uh, he reprinted a book of Ghosts of Old New Orleans. And then I started teaching New Orleans literature. And, and then I ended up teaching ghost courses. And I had a lot of fun with that. And yes, the female ghosts were subversive. And when I went to write Subversive Spirits, I found I couldn't write write about New Orleans, it was too big just to be one chapter in that book. So Uh that was part of how I moved into City of the Undead is to say, wait, maybe I need to look at the supernatural, not just in terms of the figures, but in terms of where they inhabit. So New Orleans as a supernatural site became the focus. And ghosts are an important part of that, but they're not the only part because voodoo and vampires are also important. And I will share with you, I've already been uh, criticized for not having werewolves and witches in this book. But I think there is plenty of supernatural to go around and someone else will need to write the book about the witches and the werewolves of New Orleans. One thing about ghosts, though, that you make a wonderful point at is that most of the ghosts are women. I hadn't really thought about that before, but when I was reading this, I was like, duh. I mean, (laughs) so talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, I think it's because it fits in with our idea of the feminine. That is, women are seen but not heard and have indirect influence. And that's really the most defining characteristic of a ghost. A ghost rarely, unless it's a poltergeist, can physically manifest in the world. They're shadowy, liminal figures who can influence, who can suggest, but who aren't like a vampire who's going to jump out and bite you or a voodoo practitioner who can mix a concoction up that will have an impact in the real world. So Mm -hmm. I think that the reason so many ghosts are female is that by their nature, that's a a very feminine type of supernatural being. And also ghosts linger because they are seeking justice. That's right. And there are a lot of female figures, black and white and Native American, who have suffered great injustices, and they have totally been left out of most of our history books. Their names have been lost. That's uh, something I mentioned about uh, Delphine LaLaurie's horrible atrocities, is that her name is known, but the name of the people she abused and killed is not known. Carolyn Long did some research, so we now have some names to go with what happened. But the emphasis is, sadly, in our culture, so often on the murderer and the evil uh, predator and not on the people whose stories have just been lost because they've been silenced by being killed. 
And also, you you've you've seen a ghost. Yes. I think so. I think you think. <laughs> I think I think I've seen a ghost. And believe me, I didn't I don't want to see a ghost. I mean, before I wrote this book and before I wrote Subversive Spirits, I would have said, "Oh, you know, those are literary, those are cultural, they're very interesting, but they're not real." But um, and I was just on a walking tour. I mean, that's not where you would think you would see a ghost. You'd think you'd be asleep. And a lot of ghost stories in New Orleans are about people alone in a um, very old house and something happens and there's nobody to corroborate it. But I was on a walking tour and other people besides me let out immediate gasps when they saw this uh, fog that was coalescing into a figure on top of a roof. And so that was, it wasn't an, a pleasant experience. And that's one, I, I think, one piece of advice I have for people who are interested in the supernatural, be very careful. Uh, one of my um, interview subjects in this book uh, talked about, and I didn't put it in the book, but she talked about how she used to do seances and then something very bad happened. And since then, she has not done any seances. And this is a person who was accustomed and comfortable in the supernatural world, but she just feels that mm -hmm. those who think it's just uh, entertainment and funny uh, should be should beware. Well, it must have been very comforting not to be alone in seeing. Yes, it was, and we quickly uh, moved on from that spot. And uh, it didn't, and it wasn't a threatening manifestation. One question I've been asked is, "Well, aren't there friendly ghosts? I mean, aren't there ghosts who try and help people?" And there are in New Orleans a few documented cases, but mostly the dominant um, story of a ghost is something went really tragically wrong with their lives, and they want to be remembered and acknowledged. It's not usually that they're able to help people uh, because they don't have any, you know, special powers. And they want justice. They definitely want justice. And, um, you know, part, the first part of justice is to have your story told. Mm -hmm. I think the friendly ghosts came from cartoons. Yes, Casper. <laughs> yes, there's no Casper the ghosts in my book. I'm sorry to say that's not really the dominant trend of ghosts in New Orleans. Not not friendly, uh, traumatized and sometimes angry ghosts, but not, not Casper. So I wonder... What do you think of these ghost tours? Well, I, I mean, think are they, most of them yeah. legit or most of them? Well, I went on a lot of them, and that was one of the fun parts of researching my book. I had an excuse to go on every single. I went on a tour that was um, a voodoo queen tour. I went on ghost tours. I went on vampire tours. So I've been on quite a few in a, in a, a pretty short period of time. They are entertaining, and actually, um, Taya Miles has written about them in terms of the ethics of appropriating the stories of African Americans to make money and to, you know, mm -hmm. entertain maybe cheaply. And I would say like everything else, just like books in general, some of the tours are very historically based and, um, you know, don't manufacture or uh, go to the sort of gaudily entertainment narrative. But um, uh, some of them are, you know, uh, just about trying to entertain uh, people who've come to New Orleans for a good time. So I would say to anybody who's interested in going on a walking tour is do your research, go online, see what they're uh, saying they are, are offering to you. But regardless of the style of the ghost tours or over the haunted history tours, uh, voodoo tours, vampire tours, they all seem to tell a lot of stories from uh, Jean de Levine's Ghosts of Old New right. Orleans. So there we have literature again, because 
tales are told, but once they're written down, they take a kind of shape and a kind of direction. And so there's certain stock stories we hear over and over again, including the Lalori uh, narrative, which almost every tour included a stop at the Lalori Mansion. Well, recap that for us for people who might not know. Okay, it. well, uh, it's a it's an awful story, and it's a kind of an exceptional story in that uh, Delphine Lalori was an extremely wealthy. A woman, and um, it's documented that she tortured and abused her enslaved servants. And she was actually taken to court and fined. This is in the historical record. Mm -hmm. Fined. And think about in the early 19th century, how awful you would have to be to actually be held responsible and have to pay a fine for how you mistreated the enslaved. Right. So that's a pretty a pretty important indication of how awful she was. She had wonderful parties and invited all the elite of the city. And she had a very strange habit of disappearing during the parties and coming back in a different dress which some thought was that, you know, she was showing off her wealth. But in fact, she had a part of her home on Governor Nichols Street where she uh, it was really a torture chamber. And there are many different versions of the tales, one which includes a young girl uh, jumping from the balcony and dying rather than face the torture, also mm-hmm. of an enslaved woman who was a cook who started a fire, even though she was chained to the stove, because she couldn't she bear what was it. going on either. And it was the fire that caused LaLaurie to be uh, found out. The firemen came, and she told them not to go upstairs and uh, where the torture chamber was. They didn't know. But fire was a huge thing in New Orleans. So they couldn't right. risk the fire spreading and taking out the whole city as it had earlier, uh, you know, a fire in these close quarters and all these homes so close together. So the firemen ignored her, and that's when they broke in and found the evidence of her atrocities. And she, realizing that she was going to be held accountable, had jumped into a carriage and was driven away, never to be seen again. What happened to her, I really recommend Carolyn Long or Martha uh-huh. Ward's biography, because Long especially did archival research in France to find out more about her fate. But she basically got away with it. And that's awful. And of course, the LaLaurie Mansion ever since has been plagued with ghosts and uh, had a lot of turnover in its ownership, including mm-hmm. most recently Nicolas Cage owned right, it. Right. Uh, Cage rather famously was asked how he could live and sleep in the LaLaurie Mansion. He said, oh, we don't sleep there. I have a home uptown. I know. So, <laughs> <laughs> he, he also, you know, respected and feared. Exactly. But he he still suffered some consequences and lost that uh, beautiful mansion to bankruptcy. So right. that's he probably got off easy. <laughs> well, that's one of the interesting things about this, reading this whole book and thinking about it, is that, well, there's cultural infrastructure for all of these things. You know, there are books, there are movies, mm-hmm. TV shows, things like that. But literally... There's physical infrastructure. Yes. We have the haunted houses that people can go and visit. We have the cemeteries. And this is something that exerts a real hold on the imagination when you can go and stand in the spot, as it were. Right. And I think that's part of the appeal of the walking tours because you're taken right to the very spot. And to recur to my argument about other cities, other cities tore down their buildings. New Orleans, in part because of its poverty, did not tear down the French Quarter. Those buildings remained, and the supernatural, especially ghosts, are kind of like cats. They're uh, drawn to the place where things happen to them. They're they're haunting a specific spot. So when it's not torn down, they're um, still able to linger more powerfully 
than they might in another in another city in another setting. What's that French Quarter real estate sign? Right. Haunted or not haunted. <laughs> and it's so funny because in the French Quarter you can see signs that say both. So some people actually do want to buy haunted property, although, again, sorry for my realtor friends, I would not recommend it. Uh, go with the not haunted, which might also be haunted. You might just not know about it. You might discover it. You might discover <laughs> it, yeah. So, of course, we have to talk about vampires. Yes. We could talk about vampires for days. We could. <laughs> vampires in New Orleans are really so tightly connected. And we owe a lot of that to Anne Rice. Because as I went and researched vampires, there were a few little inklings of vampire stories. But not until she published Interview with a Vampire do you have this sort of symbiosis where when you think of New Orleans, you think of vampires. And when you think of vampires, you think of New Orleans. Right. So, um, and uh, anyone who's read her book, books knows that she loved the city and she wrote so hauntingly about its beauties and its uh, tragedies. And so I think she really uh, captured the soul of New Orleans in her interview with a vampire and subsequent books. And she made New Orleans a destination Yes, for Halloween. I mean, now you can drive by First and Chestnut and there'll still be people standing outside yes. that house. That's right. Well, and that, I think, is such a tribute both to the city, but also a city's story has to be told by those who love her. And Anne Rice loved New Orleans, mm -hmm. and she was on its wavelength. And so that's one of the reasons New Orleans is a top 10 tourist destination is, you know, the appeal. It's appealing to vampires, and the vampires' love for New Orleans makes regular old humans love it, too. Now, you do talk about the racial divide. You can't write about New Orleans without right. writing about race. And I loved it when you summoned up the spirit of Brenda Marie Osby's poem, Why We Can't Talk to You About Voodoo. Yes. So I wonder if you'd explore that a little bit for well, us. Well, I guess for me, it's very clear to me that the African-American and Caribbean influences on the supernatural often only get like a sentence and then they're dropped. And mm -hmm. so there's not an awareness of the cultural fusion or the debt that New Orleans owes to other regions of the world, Africa, the Caribbean. And actually, one disappointment I had with this book was that there's just simply not documentation of the Native American tribes in our area. We know the names. We know a few snippets from European perspective about what mm -hmm. these tribes did. So I really had to look at Native American culture generally to kind of understand the importance of ancestor worship or the presence mm -hmm. of ancestors, both in Native American and in African American and Caribbean cultures. Of course, you know, it's difficult to write about when you don't have enough sources, but you can't leave it out and you have to acknowledge and hope that future researchers will be able to tell us more and sort of add to the importance of uh, the fusion of cultures in the society to the creation of the supernatural. Because that's really what New Orleans uh, is a big part of the New Orleans sales pitch to outsiders. <laughs> Why should you come here? Because we're different. Well, how did you get different? And what are those differences? And at what cost did this fusion of culture come? So how did writing this book move you along in your journey? You're not teaching anymore. Sadly. Well, 
I don't miss the grading, as all professors say, <laughs> but I do miss the, the, students. In, the students and their ability to challenge and to ask you to think and justify your beliefs. And so I do owe, in this book, owe a lot to the students who really wanted answers about the supernatural. And so, uh, in a way, this book is, is my going away present to my students. Well, Terry Toulouse said once that, you know, New Orleans is a city talking to itself all the time mm-hmm. in constant conversation. And you've been a big part of that conversation. So how does this move the conversation along to the next step? Well, the book is directed, I do explain maybe in too much detail, some of the history of New Orleans that people who live here probably feel they know pretty well. But having been an expatriate in Arkansas for over a decade and teaching students who were primarily from Texas, Arkansas, and around the world, I had to give a sort of more basic explanation of the city. So I hope that for someone who comes here and goes on a walking tour, but they want to know more, I sort of see this book as a reference for them to dive a little deeper into the little tidbits that you get on tours. Well, it's full of great stories. I tell you what. <laughs> well, that's that's to New Orleans credit. I know. It's a gift, isn't <laughs> it? It is a gift. It is a gift. We've been talking with Robin Roberts about her new book, City of the Undead, Voodoo, Ghosts, and Vampires of New Orleans. Robin, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Susan. Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. The Southern Food and Beverage Museum is holding a book sale of hundreds of beautiful cookbooks, many in mint condition. Hours are Thursday through Monday from 11 to 5, and it is ongoing. The Friends of the New Orleans Public Library announced special holiday hours. Carriage House Books Behind Ladder Library is open every Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday from 10 to 2 through December 23rd. And Algiers Books at Algiers Regional Library is open every Saturday from 10 to 2 through December 23rd. Coming up in 2024, One Book, One New Orleans has announced its 2024 selection, which is Black Creole Chronicles, Poems, by former State Poet Laureate Mona Lisa Saloy. If you're looking to kickstart your writing practice in 2024, the Tennessee Williams in New Orleans Literary Festival is offering Writing Resolutions, a day-long writing retreat, Saturday, January 13th. All sessions are virtual. It begins with a free writing session from 10 a.m. to noon, followed by Create Successful Habits and Design an Inspiring Writing Habitat at 12.05, then Get Published at 1.30, Find an Agent at 3, then Build a Writing Community at 4.20. Check out TennesseeWilliams.net to register. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. 
You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at wwno.org. And you can email us at the reading life at wwno.org.